From WDBM, East Lansing. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Our weekly news and storytelling program. Made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Undercurrent. Hello and welcome to The Undercurrent Season 11, Episode 1. I'm your host, Cole Tunningly, and I'm so happy to be here. I love when a new season starts. It's like a blank slate for me. The undercurrent is my canvas, and I'm here to paint you a picture. A picture of the world. Today, me and my colleague, Sophie Sagan, will be talking about two figures from history. One who's beloved, and one who, right now, is not so beloved. They really don't have anything to do with each other, and I wouldn't want you to think that I am comparing these two in any way. Our first story, in honor of MLK Day, is about MLK's visit to Detroit. Reporter Sophie Sagan researched this story and told it back to me. You'll hear that later, and then after that, we'll be switching gears to a story about John Engler. Yes, our ex-interim president. He resigned this week with an 11-page letter. Now that he's gone, I think it's time to take a look back at the man's legacy. And let's be honest, folks, spoiler alert, it's really bad. He did bad things. I think if you picked any random student or faculty member, you'd have a good chance of finding someone who would have done a better job than Angler. All it would have taken was humanity and empathy, but he didn't show any of those in his time here. And I'm personally very glad he's gone. I did a little bit of research into the man's life so I could talk about it with Sophie. We went over his time here at MSU and also his time as Michigan's governor. All that is coming up next. This is the season 11 premiere of The Undercurrent. I'm really excited. Can you tell that I've got a smile on my face? I'm smiling while I talk right now. We'll be back soon. In a second, Sophie and I are going to talk about MLK and his visit to Detroit. Around MLK Day every year, I'm reminded of how important it is to go back and read the actual man's words. Not read people writing about him, definitely not watch people talking about him on TV. Because a lot of the time his words get kind of whitewashed or people misuse them or people misquote him. And I think that's so wrong because when you go back into these speeches, he has some of the most incredible ideas and presents them in a way that actually gets people to think like he does and to believe in the things that he believes. I think it's really beautiful. And you'll hear some of that in this story coming up right now. All right. So tomorrow is January 21st. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Um, And a lot of times what I associate with Martin Luther King Jr. is his great march on Washington. Yeah? Yeah, that's that's what I think of. I think of I Have a Dream for sure. Different boycotts, uh, his time in jail. Um, Yeah. Cool. All good stuff that I am going to get to. (laughs) Uh. One of the things that uh, Martin Luther King also did, cool, was, well, do you know about the walk to freedom in Detroit? Um, I feel like I've seen pictures maybe where they're holding signs that say stuff about jobs. I've definitely seen MLK with the sign behind him that says Detroit, but I don't really know why they were there or what walk to freedom really meant. Okay, cool. Well, let's talk about it. Um, so on June 23rd, 1963, Martin Luther King, among other civil rights leaders, led the Walk to Freedom March uh, in Detroit, Michigan. So over 125,000 people attended the march. Um, 
And to give that some context, that's more people than attended the Super Bowl last year. So is that all those people are in Detroit? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it was a lot. If you see the pictures, it's just, I mean, it swarms and swarms. And so um, immediately following that march, that walk up Woodward Avenue, about 14,000 of those people crammed into Cobo Hall uh, to hear Dr. King speak. Uh, so after thanking all the leaders, uh, he opened it up this way. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot begin to say to you this afternoon how thrilled I am. And I cannot begin to tell you the deep joy that comes to my heart as I participate with you in what I consider the largest and greatest demonstration for freedom ever held in the United States. I always forget that Detroit had its era as a place where people would hold maybe the largest gathering of some kind in the country. You know, that Detroit was such a big city. Yeah, yep. And so did I when I was like looking into all this. And um, so, yeah, so up until this point in the civil rights, the civil rights movement, uh, this was the biggest demonstration ever held. So this happened about two months before the monumental and historical March on Washington, where MLK gave his I have a dream speech that like came to be immortalized and came to be this, you know, symbol and sort of like point of history that everybody remembers. But however, Detroit was the first place that he actually gave that speech. So it was sort of a dry run for Washington. And um, there are parts that obviously changed between those two events, but a lot of them are really remarkably similar, which you can hear in this clip. I have a dream this afternoon that my four little children, that my four little children will not come up in the same young days that I came up within, but they will judge, be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I have a dream this afternoon that one day right here in Detroit, Negroes will be able to buy a house or rent a house anywhere that their money will carry them, and they will be able to get a job. Yes, I have a dream this afternoon that one day in this land the words of Amos will become real and justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I have a dream this evening. Can you tell he's a preacher? Yeah, I no, I think that is a great method of public speaking that I really miss because all these, the new inspirational public speakers that we have, like people say, Obama, you know, Beto can really get a crowd whipped up, but they kind of do this weird, almost like our radio voice, but I'm okay. You can actually tell that he's feeling things. He's appealing to God and the whole crowd. Um, I think it's great. I would prefer someone to sermonize rather than someone who's like, hello, folks. Good evening. Actually, that's what a lot of people have said is that going to see Martin Luther King really felt like going to church. So that part speaks to me a lot because it sounds, I mean, it really captures the I have a dream that goes on to be uh, immortalized on, on Washington. 
but he also talks about Detroit in that in that part, and that's what really kind of got me thinking. And there's one more part that I want to play um, because this is the middle of the speech where MLK basically calls on Detroit to keep fighting for civil rights. Um, and it stood out a lot to me because it sort of captures the difference between the fight in the North and the fight in the South. As I move toward my conclusion, you asking, I'm sure, what can we do here in Detroit to help in the struggle in the South? Now, in the North, it's different in that it doesn't have the legal sanction that it has in the South, but it has its subtle and hidden form. And it exists in three areas, in the area of employment discrimination, in the area of housing discrimination, and in the area of de facto segregation in the public schools. And we must come to see that de facto segregation in the North is just as injurious of the actual, as the actual segregation in the South. So there he starts talking about the South and how um, Detroiters and Northerners in general can find solidarity and find their place in the civil rights movement. And that's what really kind of got me thinking, because when I think about the civil rights movement, the first thing that jumps into my mind are those southern cities like Birmingham and Montgomery and even Selma. You know, the brutality and the clash that was going on down there. It's sad to me now that Detroit isn't seen as a um, as Montgomery or Birmingham or Selma, um, only because it, it really did have a lot of cool civil rights contributions, aside from the civil rights activists and organizers that played huge roles. Um, it did play a huge financial role, which was something I had never really thought about. For example, um, when King and other protesters were thrown in the Birmingham jail, uh, the president of the United Automobile Workers Labor Union, Walter Ruther, was the one who pulled together over $160,000 in funds to get them released. That's great. I mean, I love to hear about um, solidarity between MLK and uh, workers because I feel like it gets lost a lot how much he supported workers and was talking about jobs for everyone and everyone having a house. And like it, it wasn't just civil rights. Like he was advocating for full, like something even bigger than that, I think. He was fighting for citizenship rights. But yeah, this auto, uh, Walter Ruther, he, King actually called this guy the most widely known and respected white labor leader in the nation. Um, and he was a Detroit guy, so that was cool. But anyway, back to the Walk on Freedom speech specifically. Cool. So if we've got a couple minutes, uh, I want to talk about one more thing um, that's a big part of the speech, which is the recording, right? Like, it sounds pretty good. It does, yeah. There's, you can tell it's in a big room. You can hear his voice kind of like soar around, and you can tell how many people are there. But it's not like totally just lost and he's drowned out. I think it sounded good. Yeah, you kind of sound and you kind of feel like you're there, and um, that might be because Motown recorded it. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Ex-boxer and founder of Motown, Barry Gordy, um, is mainly famous for recording artists like Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, and Diana Ross. Uh, but despite having a significant influence in producing black artists, he wasn't overly interested in politics. Um, he was much more focused uh, in the beginning of being the sound of young America and capitalizing on music uh, that's been described as, uh, quote, 
a combination of soul and R&B wrapped in crossover rhythms. Uh, in the volatile 60s, the sound was perfect, soulful enough for blacks to embrace it, and clean enough for whites to enjoy it. So he was really sort of soaring on that success, but he eventually had a change of heart and realized um, probably that his business was, I mean, just inherently linked to the civil rights movement um, and the art that he was producing. And so Gordy Hisson said that, quote, Dr. King told me that my music was really about social integration while he was trying to bring about intellectual and political integration. He wanted me to join him in his movement and he wanted to be a part of Motown, my label. Yeah, so Motown put out these spoken word LPs. They were the first spoken word um, products that they, they put out for distribution, uh, including the March on Washington and the March to Freedom that we've been talking about. And all of the royalties made from those sales went directly to SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I want to quick say, too, that I think it's funny that, like, if you remember, Gordy was an ex-boxer. And so he said and joked that Martin Luther King's commitment to nonviolence was kind of a foreign idea to him. Um, but that's besides the point. I just <laughs> think that that was a great quote. Um, so, yeah, so Motown recorded and distributed the LPs, both for Walk to Freedom and obviously more famously, the March on Washington. But that's sort of the link from Detroit to the civil rights movement. And what parts of the world do you see like MLK's legacy being continued? Like you've done all this research and I feel like you, you listen to this speech and are there, can you think of anything that people are doing that reminds you of this same like spirit? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the parts in his speech that really stood out to me and that reminds me a lot of the Black Lives Matter movement is just the idea of advocacy and seeing wrong and seeing brutality and making a concerted effort to fix that And like that joining system. together. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. In his speech, Martin Luther King he points to Emmett Till as a reason to to fix yeah, like everything that's going wrong. The an example of the brutality and stuff. Exactly. So. And so today I see us looking at people like Michael Brown and sort of finding these new wrongs that need to be righted. And I think that Martin Luther King stood up for people and stood up for people who've been wronged, and that's what I see still today. And that that's where I see his legacy, at least. From this speech, that's what I, I pulled out. Welcome back to The Undercurrent. I'm your host, Cole Tunningly. And now the second part of our episode, a goodbye to John Engler, a little survey of the man's life up until this point. It's abridged in some places. Now, I don't like to focus too much on people that I don't really like or give them too much time on the show, but I think it is important now that Engler is gone to remember him and to solidify his legacy as something supremely grotesque. You'll hear it all in my conversation with Sophie Sagan. Here it is. John Engler was born on October 12, 1948. He uh, went to MSU, and he got a law degree from Cooley Law School. You know anyone else who graduated from Cooley? I, I don't. It's kind of an interesting place. Here's some notable alumni. Besides John Engler, you got Michael Cohen, who you know from the news today. Mm-hmm. You got the judge who presided over the Nasser trials. Oh. And Rashida Tlaib, the new Michigan representative who just made a ton of people mad for calling the president a f***. Have you seen that clip? Yep. It's pretty fun. I like it. He spent most of his adult life in the government. He was elected to the Michigan House at 22. 
Oh my god. That seems real young to me. I mean, yeah, I personally I I don't love his policies, but like yeah, that's young. As you know, he was our governor for mm-hmm. three terms. Um in Michigan, as you know, cuz cuz we're here, it's 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 the land of dreams. Um That's how I feel every day when I wake up. During his tenure as governor, he reformed education and in doing so, he became enemies with the teachers union. Way to go, John. Yeah, reforming education and making enemies out of the teachers, I think, is a sign that you didn't do a good job reforming Feels education. counterproductive. And I'd say that he's probably the reason we have these crumbling public schools and uh, Michigan is like a hotbed of charter school activity, which I don't think is necessarily a great thing. Yeah, I think all that stuff started when John Engler was governor. I blame him because it's fun to blame him. He also is the type of person that seems to know how to get away with stuff and how to cover stuff up, which is, I think, why MSU kind of wanted him as interim president. He, during his time as governor, denied justice and ignored the pleas for help of hundreds of women who were sexually assaulted in the Michigan prison system. Uh, When the media started covering this and people started to respond, according to an article on prisonlegalnews.org, Engler responded to them with, quote, the legislator pushed through two bills in December 1999 with very little time for public input. One of them removes prisoners from the protection of the civil rights statute. The other removes them from the protection of the state disability statute. One lawsuit started to come out. Engler passed these two bills as fast as possible to make it so they couldn't do anything about it. Tell me if I'm wrong, but it kind of feels like a gag, a, a, a gag law. Yeah, that's sort of how I saw it. All the other stuff he did as governor wasn't really good either. He was reducing taxes all over the place. Um, He was a big small government guy. He was privatizing everything, um, big into welfare reform. And he ended his term by trying to negotiate a deal that would allow Dow Chemical to dump nine times more toxins into our water. What? That was kind of his last, like... Hurrah, as governor, was trying to, like, push this thing through. Um, Yeah, just so Dow Chemical could be even more toxic. This seems like a theme to me among Michigan governors, the poison water thing. Yeah, which is insane because, like, our Michigan's whole thing is water. It just... Ah! (laughs) That's our big thing. That's, that's That's our symbol. That's our... Why you gotta... No, some people see, you know, the, the Great Lakes and they see just a, a big hole to dump all their, all their chemicals. There's some runoff from their, their factories. And then the rest of the water that still looks nice goes to Nestle. So we can buy, <laughs> so we can buy it later. Um, and I think the fish all die is what happens. Oh, God. Uh, Angler always shot for the stars. Even while serving as governor, he was ambitious and looking for work elsewhere. In 1996, he tried to become Bob Dole's running mate in the presidential election. He talked himself up as a great welfare reformer. A New York Times article nicknamed him the welfare maverick. So he really just doesn't like welfare. He doesn't like monetary assistance. That seems like a fundamental part of his personality. (laughs) And we saw that at MSU because he shut down the Healing Assistance Fund. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) This is a very powerful, wealthy man who is constantly concerned with how people are spending money that they need. George W. Bush also said that John Engler was someone with whom he could feasibly work closely. But as we know, in the end, Dick Cheney got the job. 
I mean, can you imagine if John Engler was the one orchestrating the Iraq war and then Dick Cheney was here as our interim president? Yeah, what would that be like? In 2003, Engler moved out of the governor's mansion and into, I'm sure, just another mansion. He's been going around doing business things ever since he left government, which seems to be what American politicians like to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 2015, The Hill actually named him one of the top lobbyists in the country. Uh, A little blurb about him uh, says that he pushed for immigration reform, reducing regulations, and an overhaul of the tax code. (sighs) I feel bad. I feel like I just sigh a lot. (laughs) But well, that's what I'm presenting you with is a series of opportunities to sigh. It, Yeah, that's that's what I feel. I just. <sighs> so now I think we're at the point where he was announced as our special little guy. You know, he got to sit in the president's chair for a while. I'm going to go through like not his greatest hits. Maybe you could call him like his not greatest hits or his worst hits. Um, because I think now is a good time to go over that because we don't have to deal with him anymore, hopefully. Hopefully. We don't need to reopen that door. So on January 31st, 2018, he was appointed our interim president. This was a day after the MSU steering committee threatened to vote no confidence in the board if they chose him as our interim president. They did choose him as our interim president, and the steering committee did vote no confidence in the board, but... Nothing really changed. Now, if we skip ahead to April 13th, this was, to me, one of the first big angler moments. I don't know if at this point he had done anything that really made people gasp. And I was at this board of trustees meeting. People audibly gasped when they heard about this, for sure. In front of the board, in front of everyone in attendance, in front of tons of TV cameras and angry students, Nasser survivor Kaylee Lorenz said... That Angler told her in a private meeting, right now, if I wrote you a check for $250,000, would you take it? Lorenz's lawyer was not president. It was actually her and her mom trying to go talk to Angler uh, face-to-face and kind of shock him into understanding or empathy and convince him that he needs to start acting differently. And his response was... A bribe. A bribe, yeah. Like, he he definitely never had all the right ideas, but it didn't seem like he was going to go around, you know, swearing and offering people checks. And... He didn't feel aggressive. He didn't feel inflammatory. And I think, yeah, this is the point where I I audibly gasped by myself reading the, the news story about it. And I think he really revealed his hand when um, a little bit later he attempted to discredit this claim by calling it, wait for it, false news. Oh, my God. I guess fake news was trademarks or something. <laughs> but he called it false news, which I think shows exactly the type of person he is, because we know the type of person who says false news, fake news, whatever. Yep. We're so familiar with this type of personality that makes me sad. And it, I don't know, I just feel like the institution that we're a part of and the nation that we're a part of as a whole just deserves better than aggressive and inflammatory and i think all of us were also just very upset and i remember because 10 days later on april 23rd after that board meeting uh survivors and community members and a ton of people called on angler and the board to resign that's when we had the rally for resignation he's really good at making large masses of people angry at him yeah 
And I, I think that's especially fascinating considering how much of a hero he could have theoretically been. I mean, I know as a lifelong career politician and businessman, he wasn't going to come in and save the day. But imagine just the good vibes if he did come in and shake up the administration and change things around. Yeah, he just wasn't what we needed. No. And he continued to prove that he wasn't what we needed at all. On uh, June 15th of 2018, an article was published in the Chronicle of Higher Education. They had details from emails that Angler had sent out, which is one of my favorite features of the modern era is for some reason, no politician or professional person or maybe just no person above the age of 40 can keep their emails a secret. His email leaks. Well, you know what I say is lock him up. Oh, dear God. <laughs> this emails thing, we got we to gotta get emails on lock or start writing letters to each other again or maybe some telegram stuff. So the Chronicle of Higher Education published this article about his emails and in it, um, not in the article, but in the emails, he implied that Rachel Denhollander and other survivors were being used as puppets to stir up outrage at the university. It sort of reminds me of the whole crisis actors thing. That's exactly that what now. I was going to say. Yeah, which is incredible because that is fully conspiracy language. Coming from the president of the institution that this crisis is happening at, too. That's what I'm saying. It's like, not even like some wacko who's like looking on. It's like you're in the middle of it. Yeah. It's happening to the people that you supposedly are supposed to be representing and protecting. Um, he also suggested in the emails that Den Hollander might receive kickbacks from her lawyer. Uh, another ridiculous claim that also points to how he, he seems to think this whole thing is about money because the $250,000 check, he thinks these people are being paid to be angry. He, um, and he shut down the healing assistance fund. It's this, this whole thing is very monetary to him. Yeah, the people who need the money aren't getting it. And just because you're angry about a grave misjustice, you are somehow gaining financially? I don't understand. It, <laughs> we all just get worked up, you know? Just, yeah. <laughs> and then we go cash our checks I and cool down. I can't help it. I'm just, I'm just very, I'm just an emotional woman who needs to let it out somehow. That is, I think John Engler himself would agree with you on that <laughs> one. Less than a week after this article came out, he had to apologize for his comment about teal sh do you remember that? Do I remember Teal uh, all over campus? That was one of the things that made me feel good about the direction that the campus and the institution could go is because I felt like the movement and the the passion and the support had spread to literally all parts of campus. Like those ribbons showed up everywhere they were on. Everyone had those little, you know, Teal ribbons on their backpacks and they we had things on trees and, you know, People were showing up at sporting events like that's what we're known for and in Teal. And it was and really to call it shit, like, I don't know, that seems very. But um, then again, he doesn't have a great uh, track record for supporting victims. So, <laughs> yeah. And then in August of this year, we learned about the famous issue of the Spartan. That's our alumni magazine. Angler threw out an issue that focused on the negative aspects of the Nasser scandal and had one published that focused on. The positive aspects. Him. Him. His biggest accomplishments at MSU. Did you read any of that? I remember seeing, I read an article about it. I did not read the actual um, 
the the one that actually went out or the or the one that didn't. I think I read the beginning of the one that didn't, but Okay, well, I'll just read you the cover of the issue that went out, and I actually got this in the mail, and I remember when my mom uh, handed it to me and said, I, th I think this is yours. It's just a, it's a green background with white text. It's a Spartan at the top, of course, the title of the magazine, and then beneath that, the university which faced the most difficult challenge in its history has emerged and is going to be, and then right here the text gets really big, stronger, safer and more competitive than ever before. Competitive seems like a weird choice of words right there. Yeah, I have really no idea what this is supposed to mean, literally. It sounds straight out of Angler's Fever Dreams to me, as though the man himself just muttered it in his sleep. And so it shall be. On November 8th, 2018, Kelly Tabay and Brianna Scott were elected to the Board of Trustees. We had two new trustees, and uh, things kind of seemed like they were looking up. Those two said they wouldn't fire Angler, but as we know now, kind of a moot point. Yeah, they were the the progressives, and um, yeah, as you said, it, it turns out that didn't matter. They didn't have to fire him. Yeah, because less than a month later, the state news got an email stating that Angler would end the Healing Assistance Fund. And I really feel like that was the beginning of the end of the end for him, because from the beginning, he was making mistakes. But I feel like this was the one where he really started to just slip down that slippery slope. And luckily it did kind of turn out to be the end on uh, January 8th, which was, you know, only a few weeks ago. Thousands of people started signing a petition to reopen the Healing Assistance Fund. Gretchen Whitmer did it. Uh, some of the trustees did it. Um, and people started really reacting in a way that they hadn't. And I feel like um, the walls just really started to close in on Angler, which I wish they would have done at the Rally for Transparency or at the Rally for Resignation, but I'm glad that it eventually happened. As am I. Well, that is it for this week's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I'd like to thank our general manager, Jeremy Whiting, our station manager, Olive Mitchell, and our programming director, Simon Fenzi. I'd also like to take some time out to thank all the people who didn't really get much of a shout out. All the activists and survivors who have been working tirelessly since the Nasser scandal broke. All the students and teachers and moms and dads. John Angler couldn't stop y'all. I think y'all actually stopped him, and that's pretty incredible. Have a great day, and I'll be here same time, same place, next week. I've been your host, Cole Tunningly. Goodbye. <laughs>